Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. We are pleased to be able to bring to you presentations from the Poison and Poisoners one-day event that took place in London on the 29th of April, 2017, which was organized by Casebook Classic Crime in association with Mango Books. The following talk is by author Linda Stratman, entitled The Scientific Poisoner. Ms. Stratman is the author of 13 nonfiction books, mainly about true crime, with her latest being The Secret Poisoner, chronicling the efforts of science and the law to tackle poison murders in the 19th century. So let's venture on into the Poison and Poisoners Conference for Linda Stratman. Uh, our next speaker is your 13 non-fiction books, mainly about true crime, but also including a history of chloroform, a study the illustrated uh, police news, uh, which I actually uh, was flying through the other day. It's actually a wonderful study uh, of that uh, acclaimed journal. Uh, she's also uh, the author of the acclaimed biography of the Marquess of Queensbury. Uh, she also has for sale a, a, a book called The Secret Poisoner as well. So if you want to sign a copy, I'm sure she'll be happy to sign it uh, after her talk. But please, could we give a big, warm welcome to Linda Stratman. Hi, I hope you can all hear me because I've got the, the sore throat from hell today. So we just have to battle through. Right, well thanks for inviting me here. Yes, the scientific poisoner. This is really about the public perception of what a poisoner was. At the start of the 19th century, if you had asked a member of the British public how they perceived a typical poisoner, they would have described somebody like this. Locusta, the notorious poisoner of ancient Rome, and 15th century Cesare Borgia. They're both comfortingly distant in time, and they're foreign. Poisoning is just not British. It's something those continentals get up to. But as the century progressed, this increasing literacy, access to newspapers, revealed a frightening fact. Poisoning could happen much closer to home. And here we've got an extract from the Morning Chronicle of 1829, saying, oh, heavens, we never used to have any poisonings here, and now we've got them, and we're all getting a bit continental, aren't we? Uh, what's happening to our morals? Um, and, of course, it wasn't even as glamorous as these old stories of political scheming in the upper echelons of society. Lurid reports of poison scandals meant that a new image was emerging of the typical poisoner. And here she is, female, poorly educated from the labouring classes. She added arsenic to the meal she prepared to get rid of an unwanted husband or for money. This is Mary Ann Burdock, and in Bristol she poisoned her lodger in 1833 to steal her savings. But then in the 1850s, this public perception began to change, and it did so because of some sensational high-profile cases. So a new kind of poisoner began to really get into the public consciousness. There he is. He's male. He's educated. He comes from a respectable social class. He used less well-known poisons. He used them in a clever, scientific manner. Or he used old ones in curiously imaginative ways. 
<clears throat> and some of these poisons were doctors. Shock, horror, the very men you should be able to trust. Uh, this is actually an artist's impression of Dr. Pritchard uh, in Glasgow, 1860s, who poisoned his wife and mother-in-law. These people could deceive onlookers into thinking they were caring for their victims, even as they were killing them. They were cold-blooded. They disposed of wives, mistresses, friends, often with a financial motive. And you had to be very careful with your facts before accusing them, because they had money and connections and they could sue you. Now, by the middle of the 19th century, the science of forensic toxicology had made huge strides. Chemists were eagerly studying poisonous plants to identify and isolate the toxins they contained to find antidotes. Thus, of course, inadvertently providing the murderer with more powerful and less detectable ways of disposing of inconvenient persons. As every toxicologist knew, these organic poisons posed a huge problem when investigating a suspicious death. I mean, chemists were getting quite good, as we've heard, at detecting metallic poisons like arsenic and antimony. If you're testing suspicious material, like stomach contents or food, you could remove the organic material. You could then leave the inorganic part behind. But what if the poison itself was organic? The test would destroy the poison as well. Now, in the old days, if you wanted to kill your husband with strychnine, you would go to the chemist and you'd buy some of these. They, these are Nuxwamica beans. You slice them up. I hope you're writing this down. Slice them up. Yeah, you, this is what Mary Berry never, never did. You make an infusion. You serve it up to him as his breakfast cup of tea with a nice slice of bread and butter. Job done. But there was a drawback to this because any remains of plant material would be a bit of a clue as to what you'd done. But these refined extracts coming from chemists were quite another matter. And many toxicologists believe and stated this was a problem that would never be solved. Now, one man who knew this very, very well was this chap, Hippolyte Visar de Boucame. He was a Belgian nobleman and he had a very expensive lifestyle. He had a chateau and lands to maintain, wife, children, servants, and of course a mistress. Now, he and his wife could not curb their spending. They were starting to have to sell off land and jewelry. This could not go on forever. But there was one way out of the financial troubles. He had a brother-in-law, Gustav. Gustav was single, and he was in poor health. He'd actually uh, had a leg amputated, so he was quite frail. If he died, de Bocomé's wife would inherit some property. Then, Gustav announced that he was going to get married. There was nothing for it. He had to die. <laughs> de Bocomé laid his plans very carefully. He decided to use an untraceable plant-based poison. He studied. He made inquiries with chemists under a false name. He ordered equipment. He ordered materials. And he set to work. Finally, he had produced the poison he wanted, but it smelt absolutely awful. There's no way he could conceal it in food, so he made another plan. Gustav was invited to dinner. After the meal, the family sat by the fireside, talking. The servants were sent away. The children were sent to bed. And then de Bocomé and his wife pounced. Gustav was knocked to the floor. He was forcibly held down. His mouth was held open and the bottle of poison was poured down his throat. 
Gustav screamed for mercy, but nothing, no one came to help him. He died, but the room was an absolute mess. This was, you know, a bit of a failure of a, of a sort of untraceable murder here. Poison was splashed everywhere. It, it was in a dreadful state, and Gustav's face was deeply scratched because of his, his, his mouth being held open. The servants, of course, had heard all these screams, and they were absolutely terrified. So Debout Kame and his wife now tried to cover up what they'd done. They got lots of vinegar. They poured it down the throat of the corpse. They scrubbed and scraped the floor. Everything that had come into contact with the poison was, was either thrown away or boiled. They then put the body in a darkened room, called a doctor, and told him that uh, Gustav had died from a fit. Now, they might have got away with this, but of course the terrified servants reported what had happened and there was an investigation. Samples were taken from the body, they were preserved in alcohol, and they were sent... Oh, I didn't actually show you that. That was the, uh, the chateau, and you see, it took a bit of upkeep. I think it probably quite an expensive property there. Um, but yeah, um, they were sent... Is that happening? Yes, this chap. This is Jean Servet Stas, he was a Belgian chemist. He was pretty sure when he looked at the samples he was dealing with some sort of organic poison, but he just didn't know what, what it was and he didn't know how to extract it. So he just did his best, filtered and washed and filtered and washed all the samples. Finally, he reduced the samples to a thick brown syrupy liquid with a very pungent smell. And as chance would have it, it was an extremely familiar smell. He'd smelled it quite a lot before. It was tobacco. Gustav had been poisoned with nicotine. De Beaucarme had quite by chance provided Stas with what he needed because it was actually the combination of the acid in the vinegar and the alcohol in which the samples were preserved which had provided what was necessary to extract the poison. It was later found De Beaucarme had been buying up tobacco leaves. He'd been extracting the nicotine from them with the assistance of his gardener, who he had actually told he was making eau de cologne. And the apparatus was discovered hidden behind some panelling, and also animals he poisoned as test subjects were found buried in, in the grounds of his chateau. So De Beaucarme was, uh, as he richly deserved, tried for murder, found guilty, and guillotined. His wife claimed she'd been forced to obey her husband and she was acquitted. I can only say that she was just as much a spendthrift as him and this was a murder that definitely took two pairs of hands, but there it is. She carried on spending money wildly and rushed off later on to marry another wealthy man. I don't know what happened to him. Now, at first, Stas thought that all he had done was find a method of extracting nicotine. What he actually found was a method of extracting all vegetable poisons, a method which, with some modifications over the years, is the basis of testing done today. It was a groundbreaking discovery. Even so, it was early days and the method wasn't infallible. A lot depended on the condition of the remains when it actually got to the, to the chemist. Now, the first case where a poison with pure strychnine went to court, we're going to be hearing about this later, was Dr. William Palmer. And due to the mishandling of the samples, they arrived for testing in such an appalling condition that even the leading toxicologist of the day, I'm sorry, I have to, we've seen this one before, there we go, um, was unable to detect any strychnine in the remains. 
So for proof of poison, they had to rely on symptoms and the fact that Palmer had purchased strychnine. However, this case attracted such uh, an incredible amount of, of public interest that an interview given to the press by Taylor led to a misunderstanding. It appeared to say that he was, he was actually giving the information that strychnine could not be found in a body. In Leeds, Mr. William Dove, who wanted to murder his wife, Harriet, read this article. Not long afterwards, his wife began to suffer from the typical symptoms of strychnine poisoning, convulsions and twitching and painful spasms. A doctor was called. He diagnosed hysteria and prescribed a tonic. Oddly enough, this didn't work and she died. It was only after Harriet's death that the doctor discovered his own apprentice had actually sold the strychnine to Mr. Dove. He'd been persuaded by Dove to, to let him have some strychnine to poison cats. So an inquest was obviously ordered. Dove found that strychnine could be found in a body after all, and he was hanged for the murder. Now, the extraordinary attention given to the Palmer case meant, means that it actually overshadowed another contemporary poisoning case which I personally find one of the most interesting ones of the period, and it's not really well known. However, you'll know about it now, because I'm going to tell you all about it. It does show that poison is not always given by mouth. Now, we're going to draw a discreet veil, although they are mentioned in my book, over those cases where husbands have poisoned their wives by introducing arsenic while in the marital bed. We're not going to talk about those, okay? But... But let us go on. In May 1855, a 40-year-old lady, Mrs. Jane Wooler of Great Burton near Darlington, was taken ill after having dinner with her husband. The couple had been served soup. Now, Mr. Wooler didn't usually have soup, but they did share a nice stew of pig's cheeks. They don't put a face. They're very nice. I actually reconstructed that dish, and it was jolly good. And we didn't die or anything. So Mrs. Wooler was now so ill, she was bedridden. She needed constant nursing. She was unable to keep any food down. <clears throat> now, it was decided, therefore, to feed her and strengthen her up by an alternative method, which was very common at the time. Yeah. She was fed by enema. So a mixture was made up, another recipe for you here, it's very good, um, tonic prescribed by the doctor, whisked up, so it's a nice smooth mixture with eggs, cod liver oil and milk, and just a soup son of laudanum to help her rest. So this was made up, put into the enema, and applied. Uh, it was actually given to her by her husband, with the assistance of the maidservant and tailor. Well, nowadays, <coughs> we know... ..that she would have received almost no appreciable nourishment from this mixture. <coughs> but in those days, it was believed it was actually possible to feed somebody with weak stomachs in that way. In fact, Mrs. Wood was actually encouraged not to take any other nourishment so her stomach could recover. Time passed. Her condition deteriorated. Three doctors saw her. They became worried. They discussed her condition, and all three had independently come to the same conclusion. Mrs. Wooler was being poisoned. Slowly, expertly, 
scientifically. And there could only be one suspect, her husband. <coughs> only two people had the opportunity to administer poison. Anne Taylor, she was a poorly educated female servant, so it obviously wasn't her. And Mr. Wooler, an educated man, he had a whole collection of medicines in the house, and he must have known how to use them. <coughs> Included this. Fowler's solution. 1% arsenic, then used as a tonic. Small amount, not too much harm. Tablespoonful wasn't going to do you any good at all. So what did the doctors do? Did they question Mr. Wooler or Anne? Did they warn Mrs. Wooler or her relatives? Did they perhaps um, report their suspicions to the authorities? No, they didn't do any of those things. They were so fearful of their reputations in case they made a mistake that they actually did very little. They kept it to themselves. They did tests on the patient's urine. They weren't very expert, so it was inconclusive. So they decided to consult an expert. Yeah, This is um, Dr. Christensen in Scotland. He was the author of the first modern book of forensic toxicology written in English. So they sent him a sample for testing and he found arsenic. And he reported his results. But by the time he'd reported it, Mrs. Waller was dead. It had taken her two months to die. Only later was it thought to test the residue on the enema syringe, which I'm, I'm sorry to have to tell you had been put away unwashed. <laughs> yes. Arsenic was also found there. It was actually in the mixture she'd been fed. Mr. Wooler was arrested and tried for the murder of his wife. <clears throat> but where was the motive? They were happily married. There was no other woman in the picture. Mrs. Wooler wasn't insured. In fact, she had income from an annuity which ended with her death. Mr. Wooler made a very good impression in court and he was acquitted. So who killed Mrs. Wooler? Because nobody else was ever tried for this murder. Was it Mr. Wooler for some unknown reason? His only suggestion was that the doctors had accidentally poisoned her. There is one interesting clue. The urine samples taken from the patients were put in, in, in little bottles and they were stored in the coach house and then the doctors would collect them and take them away for testing. And then one day one of the doctors went to get a sample and there wasn't anything there. So he asked for a sample. Anne Taylor went away, came back and gave him a bottle. When he tested it, he found it bore absolutely no resemblance to the previous samples. It almost seemed to have come from another person. He asked Anne where she got it from, and she said she got it from the coach house. But she can't have got it from the coach house, could she? Because she obviously just didn't know he'd already looked there. She was lying. Was the sample hers? She was the only other person in the house where Mrs. Wooler had been taken ill. The only other person who would have known that Mr. Wooler didn't have soup. But she was a poorly educated female servant and quite clearly incapable of doing something as clever as this. The prosecution had decided from the outset that the murderer must be an educated man and had not even considered her as a suspect. Mr. Wooler remained single for the rest of his life. The faithful servant Anne stayed with him to the end. She was left a rather nice annuity in his will. It's always very shocking when a doctor turns to murder. 
Now, Conan Doyle said it, he put the words in the mouth of um, Sherlock Holmes, when a doctor does go wrong, he is the first of criminals. He has nerve and he has knowledge. This is Edouard Désiré Coutet de la Pomeray, born in 1830, and he was a homeopathic doctor practicing in Paris. <clears throat> he tried to improve his income by claiming to be a count. This was a lie. Uh, but he found that this didn't bring him the riches he needed to pay his debts and support. Yes, he had a mistress. She was called Seraphine de Pau. Her husband had been a painter and indeed a patient of Pomeray. He died in 1858, leaving the widow struggling to support three young children. Whether or not Mr. de Pau died of natural causes or was murdered will never be known. However, Pomeray decided he needed to marry money. So he abandoned Seraphine and her three children to court a rich wife. He claimed to be a man of property. He wasn't, but still, it didn't stop him. So for two years, he didn't even see Seraphine. He refused to see her children when they were ill. And he eventually did marry a lady called Mademoiselle Clotilde Dubitzi. She was very wealthy. Unfortunately, his ambitions, his mother-in-law who was certain that Pomeray had actually married solely for money and that his claims to be a man of property were false, kept a firm hold on her daughter's fortune. He pleaded, he threatened, and she would not let him have any money. So soon after the wedding, Madame de Bitsy actually went to inform Monsieur Claude, the head of the Paris Sûreté, saying that her son-in-law wanted to murder her. Now, Claude had actually encountered Pomeray uh, previously, because when he'd, he'd applied for a post as prison doctor, and he was well aware that his claims to have a title were fraudulent. In fact, I, I read Claude's uh, memoirs. <coughs> he described Pomeray <coughs> sorry, as a wretch who had descended upon the Dubitzi family like a mad wolf on a flock of sheep. Which is quite a, quite a nice expression. But at the time... The angry mother-in-law had no proof of her allegation, so there was nothing he could do. Not long after this visit, two months in fact after the wedding, Madame de Bitsy had dinner with her son-in-law. Soon afterwards, she fell ill with sudden violent vomiting and died the same night. The cause was assumed to be cholera. Pomeray now had his wife's money and was able to live in comfort, but he wanted more. He wanted to be really wealthy. He was looking for a way to make another fortune. He'd got away with murder once, and he thought he could do it again. Now, the unhappy Seraphine de Pau, Pomeray's abandoned mistress with her three children, eldest of whom was eight, was living in poverty. Unexpectedly, her former lover turned up with a little gift of money, seductive manners, and a scheme to provide for her children. Now, the first part of this plan was for Madame de Pau to take out policies ensuring her life. She then had to assign the policies to, to de Pomeray, and the next step was that she had to pretend to be ill. And then, when she was apparently dying, the policies had to be exchanged for an annuity, which the companies would no doubt agree to. Finally, she would make a miraculous recovery and the two happy people would live together on the proceeds of their fraud. What a charming plan. Well, the lady was examined. She was in good health. 
and eight policies of insurance were accepted for a period of three years, which would pay out handsomely in the event of her death. The annual premium was actually payable in two instalments. Pomeray didn't have a lot of money. He had to stretch all his resources to pay the first one. He had no intention of paying the second. The policies were assigned to him, and uh, Madame de Pau actually made a will in his favour. Well, she played her part. She summoned a number of doctors to examine her, claiming that she was suffering from stomach pains after a heavy fall down some stairs, and there was nothing the matter with her. Then, in preparation for the final part of the scheme, she declared that she was very ill and took to her room. Of course, she was in perfect health at the time, and a few days later, she dolled herself up, feeling very, very happy, and de Pomeray came round and they had dinner. Next morning, the woman who arrived to deliver bread found poor lady in great pain. The bed and the floor were stained with vomit, and in fact, the lady died on the following day. Pomeray obtained a certificate to say that the cause of death was gastritis, probably a damage also because of this fall. And he then had the body buried. So far, so good, really. You think I was just going to get away with it? Well, unfortunately, there was one thing he hadn't taken into account. Madame de Pau had not kept quiet about the scheme. She had told her sister that she and her lover were going to defraud the insurance company and that the fall was a fake. So the police were informed and de Pomeray was arrested. And the body of Madame de Pau was exhumed. It was now nearly, nearly a fortnight after she died. So things had moved on a little, as they say. Um, and this was the distinguished toxicologist, Tardieu, who was a professor at the University of Paris. Now, Tardieu was actually quite well known for his ability to look beyond outward appearances. He could use his ingenuity to trap murderers who thought they'd covered their tracks. Now, nothing in the appearance of the corpse suggested that Madame de Power had been suffering from any kind of illness or had any kind of injury. The viscera didn't actually present any unusual appearances, apart from the fact that she was eight weeks pregnant. Now, had she died from a poison such as arsenic, antimony, and so on, it would have been quite easy to discover it. There would have been obvious signs, but there was nothing. So Tardia felt certain that she had died from a poison of vegetable origin. But because of all the post-mortem changes and, and the difficulty in extracting them, he really just couldn't identify what it was. However, Pomeroy had recently made a large purchase of an unusual substance. Digitalin, the active constituent of foxglove. Powerful poison, causes nausea and a lowering of the pulse. Now, Tardia could not identify or extract this, so what he had to do, he had to fall back on a rather old technique and rather unpleasant to think about now, but it was actually testing on animals. Um, they prepared extracts of the contents of Madame de Pau's stomach and it administered some to a pigeon, which uh, died very quickly. They then used a frog. I, I can stop at this point. But anyway, they, they operated on this poor frog, right, and you could actually expose the heart of the frog and, and it would sort of lie there being a bit uncomfortable, but it would still be alive. I, I knew how much pain it was in, I have no idea. A lot. But what, 
a lot, yeah. So, so what they would do, um, it was to put a drop of this extract on the frog's heart and died, and then they tried with another frog, uh, digitalin, and it had exactly the same effect. So, uh, <clears throat> nasty to think about, but um, that was the way it was done then. So, <clears throat> now, Tardieu inferred, therefore, that Madame de Power had been poisoned with digitalin. In fact, he rather suspected that Pomeray's mother-in-law had died by the same method. He'd even got his mistress to write letters saying that um, all the insurances were her idea, she'd had this terrible fall. Oh, and she started taking digitalin as a stimulant. Hint, hint. Now, <clears throat> he, he must have convinced her that this was necessary for the fraud, but actually, of course, this was insurance in case he was caught. Now, while he was in prison awaiting trial, Pomeray attempted suicide three times, um, but he survived them all, and he was tried for the murder of Madame de Pau and his mother-in-law. Now, the medical evidence was actually attacked rather robustly by the defence, uh, because there was no proof of poison. The counsel for the defence had a rather unusual alternative explanation. He suggested that deadly poisons could arise spontaneously in the body from the decay of proteins. This was a fantastical concept. It was not given any serious credence. Actually, he was well ahead of his time. And, and this possibility of what is known as cadaveric alkaloids would actually be addressed at a murder trial for another 18 years. So Pomeray was acquitted of the murder of his mother-in-law, but found guilty of murdering Madame de Pau, and he was executed by guillotine. <clears throat> now, in most poison cases, there is no eyewitness to the administration. Sometimes people are seen, you know, they're trying to hide something and, and someone spots it. But one huge exception to this is this man. George Henry Lamson. He openly and brazenly poisoned his victim in full view of a witness. Now, Lamson was born in New York, but he studied medicine in France. He spent much of his career at military hospitals on the continent of Europe. So he became acquainted with a poison that had somehow fallen out of favor as a medicine because of its dangers. In fact, it is an extremely dangerous poison. It's aconite and it's an extract of, of this plant, uh, monk's hood or wolfsbane. <clears throat> now, in the UK, it was hardly ever used medicinally by, by this point, apart occasionally from ointments. <clears throat> but its use in patent medicines did persist on the continent, and so that is where uh, Lamson would have had experience of it. Now, as a means of poisoning, it has drawbacks the chief of which is an intense, bitter, burning taste. Any attempt to administer it in full foodstuffs is going to fail because you only have to touch your lips to it to get a very painful burning sensation. The root, on the other hand, the raw root, has been known to be confused with horseradish. And um, let's just say this has led to a few accidental deaths uh, following a roast beef dinner with some horseradish sauce, homemade from something that someone's picked. Now, Lamsonica, he'd used it to military hospital and sort of recklessly, actually, and he knew all about the burning taste. But a doctor or a chemist would know how to disguise the taste. There's lots of different methods. It 
did, however, have one advantage. Because by the time um, Lamson was um, carrying out his nefarious deeds, um, the, the Stas test was getting quite good to identify different organic poisons. But there were a few individual ones that could not be distinguished chemically, and one of those was aconite. Now, in 1878, he was on the Isle of Wight, and he married a, a, a lady, Kate George John, who was an orphan. She had a married sister and two brothers who were both minors. Uh, that is, under 21. It was Hubert, born in 1861, and Percy in 1862. And the, the deal was that they would inherit their share of the deceased parents' fortune, either if they married or on attaining their majority. But if they died before either of these events, that share would go to the other siblings. Now, Percy suffered from a curvature of the spine. He lost the use of his legs, and he was boarding at a school in Wimbledon. In 1879, his brother Hubert, age 18, died suddenly at Lamson's home, and his share of the parents' bequest passed to his married sisters and brother. So Percy's share of those legacy was now £3,000, which, if he died, was going to go between his sisters. Lamson had purchased a medical practice in Bournemouth, but by 1881 he was having, shall we say, severe financial problems for reasons which weren't, in fact, revealed until very much later. He was getting desperate for funds. He, he was pawning his medical instruments. He was trying to get cash advances on, on a bank with, with which he didn't have an account and things like that. And then things got worse because the Bournemouth Medical Society, finding that he wasn't entitled to the qualifications he'd been claiming, removed him from the roles. He had to sell his practice and leave Bournemouth. Now, by then, even a half share in Percy's legacy must have looked rather attractive. But Percy, apart from uh, his disability, was actually in quite good health. Lamson pretended to be concerned for Percy's health. He sent a box of pills to William Bedbrook, the headmaster of Percy's school, saying they would benefit his brother-in-law. Bedbrook had given Percy one, but the next morning the boy complained of feeling unwell and said he wouldn't take any more. Lamson had given Percy a pill himself during a family visit. Again, Percy didn't feel well afterwards. He supplied powders, which he said were quinine, now, these were uh, to be enclosed in something called medicinal wafers. These, these are actually flour paste wafers, and you put the powder in and you fold them over and just wet them. I've, I've made them once, and, and wet them with water, and they could swallow them down uh, without tasting what's in there. But there's no evidence that Percy ever actually took one. No one seems to have suspected that Lamson was trying to harm Percy. So Percy was now approaching his 19th birthday and Lamson wrote to him saying that he was going to pop round and see him. He arrived at the school and he and Percy and the headmaster, Mr. Bedbrook, met in the dining room. Bedbrook offered Lamson a glass of sherry and Lamson said yes, but um, I always have it with a bit of sugar, which seemed a little strange, but a bowl of powdered sugar was brought and Lamson put it in his sherry. Lamson had some presents. He had a bag with a Dundee cake, some sweets, which he said he brought from abroad, and he took out his knife and cut up the cake, and he handed pieces around and took one himself. The others also had sweets. He then produced two boxes of gelatin capsules. Now, this is, um, this is the only picture I've managed to find of vintage gelatin capsules. You can see they're very like modern um, capsules, but they were provided empty, to the chemist who would make up a powder, put it into the capsule, and then dispense it. 
So he said he'd brought them back from America and Bedbrook would find them very useful giving medicines to the boys. See how easily they can be swallowed, said Lamson. He pushed the box to Mr. Bedbrook. The master looked at them. He took one, examined it. There wasn't anything in it. He swallowed it. He then looked up and saw that Lamson was spooning sugar into another capsule. But Bedbrook had been rather distracted when he was looking at the one he'd been, he'd been given and he couldn't see where the capsule had come from. Lamson hurried, he handed the filled capsule to Percy, he said, Percy, you're a swell pill taker, take this, and Percy obediently swallowed it. A few minutes later, Lamson announced it was time for him to leave to catch his train. Ten minutes later, Percy began to complain of heartburn, saying he felt just the same as when Lamson had given him a quinine pill. It got rapidly worse. Doctors were summoned. There was nothing they could do. They injected him with morphine for the pain. Percy fell into a coma, and four hours after Lamson's visit, he was dead. The post-mortem examination was carried out by this chap, Dr Thomas Bond. I'm sure we're all familiar with him. And um, the stomach contents were examined by a rising star, Thomas Stevenson. Uh, He had effectively replaced Alfred Swain Taylor as the leading British toxicologist. Interestingly, um, Stevenson, rather nice picture in there, he he was eventually knighted, and that was an honour never accorded to Taylor. I, I, I'm tempted to think this maybe this very nearly fatal error in the Smethurst case was the thing which cast the permanent blight on his career. So Stevenson now used a modified version of the Stas process. He got alkaloid extracts from portions of the remains. But how could he tell what it was? Well, perfectly simple method used in those days. He tasted it. The extract that he obtained were the stomach contents, produced a burning tingling. He said it was as if a hot iron had been passed over his tongue. The symptoms lasted for seven hours before they passed off. He was quite sure it was aconite. There were pills and powders supplied by Lamson. Um, The pills and three of the powders produced the same burning sensation. There was no trace of poison in the cake, the sweets, or or the capsules. Lamson was, of course, arrested. There was speculation that the body of Hubert, the other brother, would be exhumed. This never happened. At Lamson's trial, it was shown that he had bought two grains of aconite only days before he visited Percy. He, he bought some also just before Percy had been taken ill after taking a pill. Thomas Simpson was in absolute no doubt the cause of death was poisoning with aconite. Now, what, what did the defence have to say about this? Well, Stevenson's experience was apparent here. He said to the court, I have 50 to 80 vegetable preparations in my possession and have tasted most of them. Now, Lamson's defence, and just remember, not, not that long ago, this, this is this defence in the Pomeray case, was that recent research had shown that there were poisons produced by putrefaction, which could mimic the effects of vegetable poisons. This is all very well, but actually that argument was destroyed because it was shown that Dr. Bond had taken the samples before decay had set in. Lamson was found guilty, but there was a last-ditch attempt to save him from execution by proving that he was insane. They certainly had some material to work with here because his aunt, grandmother and great-uncle had all died in an asylum in New York. Lamson was known to suffer from delusions and hallucinations. In fact, 
he was addicted to morphine and atropine. His arms were scarred for injecting drugs. None of this actually suggested homicidal mania or an inability to tell right from wrong. The Times pointed out, if he could appreciate the benefit he would derive from Percy John's death, then he could realise the wickedness of his act. Well, there was no reprieve for Lamson, and shortly before he died, he did actually admit to murdering Percy John, though he denied m murdering Hubert, and he was executed at Wandsworth. Now, only one question needs to be addressed, and I, 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 I do wonder why it needs to be addressed, but it does because of other things that people have said. How did Lamson administer the poison under the nose of William Bedbrook? Well, the simple and obvious answer, and I really like simple and obvious answers, is that it was in the capsule. But this has been disputed. Why do people make things so complicated? I don't know. Sir so Henry Hawkins, he was the, the judge, but he wrote about the case many years later. He said he thought the poison was injected into a raisin in the cake, so the skin would delay the effect. But how could Lamson even make sure that Percy was going to get the bit of cake with that raisin in it? I mean, some people suggested the cake was, was brought ready cut, but it wasn't. The, the evidence at the trial showed that Lamson took out his pen knife and cut it himself. How did he even know that the raisin would be swallowed whole? If you just bite into it, you're going to get this burning pain straight away. So, really, I don't believe the raisin theory. Um, Lamson knew that aconite had to be provided as a coated pill, a powder in a wafer, or in a capsule. He tried all three. His method shows very careful planning and forethought. He must have already primed the capsule with the poison, he just had to select the right one to fill with sugar while Bedbrook's attention was directed towards the capsule he was examining. He might even have had the fatal capsule in his pocket and only appeared to produce it from the box, a piece of misdirection worthy of a tabletop conjurer. Actually, I think the cake did have a part to play. After all, if you've eaten a large chunk of fruit cake, it's going to take a little bit of time for any poison to have an effect. It was delaying the poison so Lamson could leave so he wasn't on the premises when it took effect. Well, nowadays poison murder is rarer than it once was. Poison is much less freely available and it's much easier to detect. The only thing that never changes is that there are still killers who think that they can devise a clever scheme to commit murder and get away with it. Okay, thank you so much. And that was Linda Stratman with The Scientific Poisoner. I'd like to thank Frog Moody, Adam Wood, and Steve Ratty for making the release of this recording possible. And a link to Casebook Classic Crime as well as to Mango Books will be in the show notes. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org where you will find over 100 author interviews, roundtable discussions, and conference presentations all about Jack the Ripper and Victorian and Edwardian true crime. If you have any comments or questions about our podcast episodes, Feel free to contact us on the Casebook message boards or find us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for RipperCast. I'd like to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next time.